such an honor today to bring back a friend of the program, an incredible musician who then uh, went off and became a decorated entertainment lawyer and record uh, producer, launching 510 Records. Elliot Kahn, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. And manager. Manager. No, so I, I, I want to be clear. Can you just talk to the audience a little bit about, uh, you know, live album, Sean and I, the golden age of rock and roll, sold half a million copies. Um, and, every, and everything else sold about 104 copies. <laughs> but uh, explain the, you know, at the core, my gut tells me not, I mean, now in today's world, you have so many people having to make this a very similar decision, but did you pursue the law degree because you actually wanted, you didn't want to be a starving genius? Uh, well, these are, let's start with the, with the album. Go ahead. Um, Sean and I's first three albums did not do very well. I mean, they didn't sell 103 copies, but they sold maybe 70 or 80, 90,000 copies. Um, and... The second one was produced by Eddie Kramer, of course, worked with Jimi Hendrix. Absolutely. And the third one was produced by Jeff Barry, who, you know, produced umpteen big hits in his career. And that still didn't work. So we were trying to figure out, okay, you know, maybe we're just never going to sell any records. And then somebody at our record company came with, up with the idea of joint marketing it through KTEL which at the time was a record company that sold a lot of stuff on television. Wow. I don't think, I don't think it still exists. No, but I mean, I know they used to put out these compilation records like yeah. disco record. I love KTEL. Yeah. So it was jointly marketed um, through Kama Sutra, which was our label, and KTEL with a campaign on television, which is why it sold well, because... Uh, yeah, it was a double album, and three sides were live, at, you know, for a show at Winterland in San Francisco, and the fourth one was in the studio, but it was, you know, it was nothing special, and it sold well because of the marketing. So, yeah, there was that. Well, let me ask you, okay, so obviously that's crucial, but were there any, you have to excuse my naivety, but uh, were there any songs that became very radio-friendly? No. No, interesting. Unbelievable. No, not at all. Wow. I mean, the whole thing before, I guess, but, you know, to the point, how the the dissolute, the resolution or the sort of ending, did, did, did you have a good um, departure from Shawnee? No. No, no, it was terrible. Oh, man. It was just terrible. And, um busted friendships. I mean, it's all patched up now. This is a long, long, long time ago. But it was ended up in a lawsuit and it, I had nightmares for years and uh, it was horrible. But without, without I, I don't really need to, we don't need to get into the dirty laundry, so to speak, but what were you, aside from just being a sentient being that cares about people and, you know, relationships, what was keeping you up at night exactly? I mean, was there like... What was the lawsuit about? Oh, it was about money, of course. Of course. That's, that's what they usually are. We got into a fight about how much money I was going to get when I left, and it just got ugly, unfortunately. And like idiots, like a bunch of bright Ivy League students, you would have thought we would have had an agreement, and we had no written agreement. Oh, 
damn it. And um, one thing I learned is that the uh, the human memory is a very fallible thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're darn right, brother. <laughs> and it, it very quickly degenerated into you said, well, fuck you, I didn't say that, you said. And it just got nasty. It's unfortunate. But um, the nightmares were about the friends that I lost. Yeah. Because there were two or three people in the group who were very good friends of mine at the time. And... Uh, you know, I would love to just, just, just as an aside, I, you just said that things have been patched up. I, I often talk to my older daughter, Hannah, about this, the fallibility of memory, uh, but also like the idea that, you know, friendships, I think it's just really important to talk about the latent opportunities to resolve and reconnect because sometimes people feel like, and you felt it too. It's the end of the world and it's crushing. And yet the human spirit and the heart ultimately forgives. I mean, you, you have basically made amends with these people. They're, they're, so there's drama for a minute, but over time, can you talk about the effort that it has to be made by everybody in order to reconcile? Well, I mean, I had long since forgiven and then I got a call from their drummer. Oh, this goes back about 10 years or so. And he told me that his sister, who was a nun, was uh, at a fundraiser for her convent and was sitting at a dinner table just talking to you know, a guy on her right. And she mentioned that her brother played drums in Shanana, and lo and behold, he was working for a producer of Broadway plays who had been trying to find Shanana for a while because he was interested in doing sort of a, um, a Jersey Boys kind of thing right. based around Shanana. Wow. So Jocko, the drummer, called me up and said, you know, you're an entertainment lawyer. Would you negotiate this thing for us? So that was sort of the first step in our reconciliation. Was Jocko there with you when you left? Yes. Wow. Holy cow. And he's like, yo, help. now you can really negotiate for the first time with, yeah. for the band. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that was sort of like the first step in our reconciliation. And hell, you know, this is... Life is too short to, have to carry grudges. No, it's it's it fifty years ago. You know? No, I just think it's good, man. I think I I I really so. I mean, you know, we're talking to a cat. You guys were all Ivy Leaguers, uh, and then, I mean, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, why did you? What was the impetus? I mean, at the time, as best you can, because did you want to? address some of these, um, you know, the lack of, pa the lack of paperwork, the lack of, was that the impetus to get into, you know, music, uh, no. litigation? No. no. Okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, it would be great. It would be a great story. It would. Yeah. The through line where that continues. No, I, I left Shanana and then got talked into going out on the road for another year with another band. Um, a guy named Henry Gross who had been... Oh, my God, my dear brother. Are you, this is what I'm talking about. Dude, I love the Gross man, dude. Yeah. So anyway, Henry was a, like an old friend of mine. And I 
had quit Sean and I thinking I'm never going to do this again. And he called me up and said, look, I got a record deal. And I just booked up the wazoo for the next year. And would you come out on the road and play guitar and sing with me? And I said, nah, I'm really done with this. And he kept calling. He's oh, a very persuasive wow. guy. So he called me and called me and called me. And finally I said, oh, okay. So um, I went out on the road with him for a year. And then I was, I was really done. When his album cycle finished, I was just so done with being a road musician. I just really didn't want to do it anymore. It was eating you, the road was eating you alive, yeah. It was. And it was just, more than that, I just thought, this is not healthy for my soul. That's what it was. I started taking a look at musicians who'd been on the road several years more than I had been. And I was thinking, is that what you want to be? Right. Uh, no, I, that's not what I want to be. And can you feel yourself being sucked into being a little bit like that? Yeah. So this is not good. I, I better get out of here. It was like I've crawled down the rabbit hole about as far as I can go and still be able to turn around. Another year of this, and I'm going to be a lost soul. So I just figured I better get out of this. So I quit. And I hadn't finished college. I had dropped out of Columbia after two and a half years. And so I moved out to the West Coast, really with no idea what I was going to do, and found myself living four or five miles from the Berkeley campus and figured, okay, maybe I can do it this time when I sure as hell couldn't do it before. And so I, I finished up, did really well, decided to go to law school, not for any particular reason, and went to law school and then went to graduate school the same time I was going to law school and was mostly advising trial attorneys on jury selection. Wow. And, and you know, on trial presentation. I had gotten very interested in that while I was in grad school. And so I... When I got out of law school and grad school, I went straight to the Stanford Research Institute, which is a big think tank uh, in Menlo Park, and worked there for two or three years, and then got tricked <laughs> got tricked into being a lawyer, really, by a friend of a friend who was the uh, chairman of the board of a small high-tech company in Silicon Valley. Wow. And he hired me to do something quite different from being a lawyer. And all the time, I think, planning on get, getting me to be their in-house lawyer because it turned out that they were in terrible trouble financially and couldn't afford their legal bills from these big, fancy law firms. And so I said, sure, no problem. You got a little small legal problem, no problem. And it turned <laughs> out that their small legal problem was humongous oh my legal God, problems. Geez. And that was my first job as a lawyer, but it wasn't had nothing to do with the music business at all. And they went under. And I needed a job. I had a wife in graduate school and a baby, and my shot on our money was basically gone, and I needed to work. And I really didn't want to be a lawyer particularly. But I started looking at the daily legal, you know, the classified ads and the daily legal newspaper in the Bay Area, and boom, there was an advertisement for a music business lawyer in San Francisco, which is an unusual position there. And I figured, you know, I can, pro I can probably get this job just because of my background. This is, I, I want to go back. I, I don't know what it was like. I remember uh, interviewing a great percussionist, Bill Summers, who was um, lived in Detroit, and then he 
had an opportunity to move out to or go to grad school at Berkeley, and it sounds insane now, but at the time, if you were an in-state resident, you could go to any state school for free there. Well, it wasn't free, but it was almost free. I think at one point I was going to law school and graduate school for, I don't know, like $250 a semester. It's just something. Quick. Elliot, I want to, I, I need to stop. That's, so, so explain, because I would, you know, this is just important for me to understand because I'm always freaking out about, I mean, we, there was a period of time, Sean and I, even in the beginning of your existence where a trade union cat, like a carpenter, electrician, they weren't making that much less than doctors and lawyers. And then all of a sudden there was this sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of splitting off of like what our society considered to be something very valuable profession versus something that was more of a blue collar. A lot of it had to do with education and the degrees, but at that time, how come they're just the greed factor wasn't as high? I mean, is that can you just talk about how that doesn't sound? You're getting set for the rest of your life, even though you didn't really want to be a lawyer, and you got tricked into it, and and then and then you find the classified ad. I mean, the point is, these degrees today, they're going to run people in debt hundreds hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're really expensive. Yeah, education is. Re- I mean. Well, what happened in California is that there was a referendum called Prop 13 that was passed in California, and what it did was cut way back on property taxes. And property taxes turned out to have been funding the California state education system wow. at large. Right. So, right. yeah, that's what made it possible for, you know, you'd be able to go to UC Berkeley being a joint graduate degree program insane. $500 a year, where it's probably $60,000 a year now. And then all the living expenses on top of that, too. I mean, it was still yeah. a very affordable... I'm curious, were you living in Alameda, San Rafael? Where were you, where did you live when you, when you were out? I was out there? living in a part of Oakland called Montclair, which is just a nice little kind of village. And, and what a beautiful time to... I know you were sick of being a road dog, I mean, but you couldn't help, um, unless you were just completely in a, in a dark room, just the, the vibrancy of how hot the music was. Were you checking out music at that time at all? Did you did you see any good... Yeah, well, I spent, I, I, after I quit, I spent my first probably two years as a freelance journalist. Oh, are you kidding me? Did, none of this stuff is on the record. I love this, man. Uh, so um, I figured, let me start writing about music because that's probably what I know best. Yep. And that's where I have my best contacts. So I, I did that. And I wrote for just a ton of publications. I wrote some articles for Rolling Stone and for, you know, English for New Musical Express in England and for the Los Angeles Free Press and whoever would, whoever would pay me to write an article. Talk a little. Okay, so but again, it, it, you 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 make it sound so simple. I mean, you you had no, again, no degree, but yet you had a name from the being in Shanana. What like what were the things at that time in the mid seventies that that you wanted to pull people's coats to? Well, I was just trying. I was just thinking about this a few days ago. I think my favorite article the whole time was something I wrote for the LA Free Press. And it was about a white gospel group 
called the Oak Ridge Boys. Oh my trying, God! Are trying you trying to transition from the white gospel world into the country world? And they they did it very successfully. But at the time, it was a question. They were just starting to make that change, and I spent you know the better part of a day with them, and was just amazed by the stories they told me about the vitriol they were getting from their their fan base for starting to sing secular songs. And in particular, they had recorded Get Together, you know, the big young Sure, sure. And got, you know, just a ton of email, of letters that they sent to me telling them that they were going to go straight to hell because they were just oh, singing oh. songs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. Hold on, White Gospel, that was a... Was there a touring circuit for white gospel bands? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. So, I mean, and then they made, so when you linked up with, were they living in the Bay Area or how did you, or down no, in the, no, they were, I think they were living outside of Nashville somewhere. And they, but they just happened to be playing out there. And you would say that <laughs> they felt like they, I mean, they were already pretty commercially successful, but they were looking to move into, I mean, country, country world. right? But what's interesting is now, now, neo country music you listen to on the radio is worship music. It, it, it's not gospel, but it's like preachy. You yeah. know, it's weird. Pretty frequently, yeah. So, but this was like one a bridge too far for their fans. <laughs> so, were you? I mean, I mean, to me, like I cannot imagine taking the Jake Feinberg show into the Bay Area in the early seventies. I mean, were you? Uh, was there anything local that you can point to that, I mean, Jackson Sutter, there were like organ clubs everywhere. The Sons of Champlain was thriving. Obviously the dead was out. I mean, it was still, Winterland was still in effect. The Cow Palace. Did you do any regional stuff with, with bands out there? Um, I'm just trying to remember. I remember there were a series of summertime shows at the baseball field where the Oakland A's played which I think at the time was called the Oakland Stadium. Yes. And, um, you know, they would have two or three really big shows every summer there. And Oh, yeah, no, the no, concert's on the green, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that Bill Graham, oh, my, God. break it down. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So Rolling Stone sent me out to do an article about Fleetwood Mac. And Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Graham had just joined the band. And their first album with them had just come out. And when I was playing with Henry, Buckingham Knicks played, you know, one or two shows with us. And I remember it was their very, very first public shows as Buckingham Knicks. So it's not like I knew Stevie and Lindsay. They were my best friends or something. But, you know, there's a certain fellowship of people out on the road. It's like being in the Marines together or something. So I knew them. And so I wrote an article about them. And I remember writing the article and saying, I think this particular iteration of Fleetwood Mac is going to be the most successful I've ever had. And <laughs> they got, like, Rolling Stone got a bunch of hate mail from Bob Welsh fans, you know, <laughs> saying, how could you say that? <laughs> so. Well, I mean, that is phenomenal. So, I mean, um, when what were the most pressing, what was the biggest challenge for you when you, after the the company folded and you went into the uh, WAN ads and, and got that, uh, uh, you know, the, the job that in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, what was, like, 
Yeah, well, because it, it's interesting because it's not like I sort of was thinking about the interview this morning and I was like, you know, he's probably through all these, you know, the racket of music, he probably wanted to go and address some of these issues, which of course was not the case. But what was the biggest challenging thing early on that where you can look back and say, you know, I got thrown in the deep end, but, you know, it was worth it because it really, I, I found my voice as a lawyer. Uh-huh. Well, um, let me think. The biggest challenge was dealing with a very difficult boss. Like it was a great practice. Right. We had a wonderful practice. Um, it was just the two of us who represented Winterland Productions, which at the time was the biggest T-shirt company in the world. And he represented Bill Graham, and he represented Journey and Carlos Santana. And What, what was this cat's name? A Boston. I'm not going to tell you that. Oh, my God. Dude, because there, there's like there's like thirty there's like a good twenty years of your history that's missing from from the archive. Okay, so so this cat, yeah, so he, he was, was in, the, go ahead. He was very, he's a very funny guy, but he was very difficult to work for. <laughs> and the intercom system frequently was him sticking his head outside his office and screaming, "Hey, Jew boy!" Oh no. Now, he was Jewish, too, so it was like black people saying, hey, nigger. Yeah, I, I, you know that? Okay, I'm glad to hear that. It was you know, just, just slinging it around, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, um, I worked for him for a couple of years, and most of my work was you know, doing a million T-shirt contracts from everybody from Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and Hall and & Oates to people you've never heard of before. Um, but I went off on my own, and... The, the thrash, you know, the speed metal world was just starting to happen in the Bay Area. and Metallica was just starting to hit. And all of a sudden, there were a ton of, of Metallica, you know, copy bands in the Bay Area. And one of them had a guitar player whose dad was my mentor in graduate school. No way. Yeah. A really, I mean, he's a terrific guitar player named Alex Skolnick. And his dad called me up one day and said, you know, you remember my kid? And I said, yeah, because he had a little kid. He said, well, my kid's now 6'2", and the hair down was like halfway down his back, and is a very good guitar player. So he was playing in a band called Testament. So I got Testament a record contract with a heavy metal label run by a guy named John Zazula, who had been Metallica's first manager and first label president. And um, his label had a, you know, I guess a joint venture with, uh, with Atlantic. So I got these guys basically a major label deal. And I fired their manager for them because they didn't want to work with him anymore. And they kept asking me, do you want to do it? And I kept saying no. <laughs> You know, and I kept trying to find them a manager, and people didn't realize at the time that speed metal could be financially successful. I just couldn't find them anybody. And every time I would come back empty Hampton, they would say, well, what are you doing? And I kept saying no. And then one day, I was driving in, I was living in, in Berkeley at this point, and I was driving into work, and there was sort of like an informal white-collar hitchhiking pool going on in, in Berkeley. Oh, this is unbelievable. I love and this. And you would, 
you know, you would drive up to these spots and there'd be a bunch of people in suits standing around. You'd pick one of them up or two of them up. And if you had like three people in a car, you could go through the commute lanes. Right. The Bay right, right, right. And not have to pay a toll, but more important than that, go through like five times as fast. So I picked up this guy and he was sitting in the back seat and we were talking. And it turns out that he was a musician and was a lawyer but and really wanted to get into the music business but didn't you know was dealing with a completely different angle of the law and he was bored stiff doing it so we just started talking and i said hey i got a chance to manage this band would you want to do this with me and he said sure so you know we went into partnership and that was like the first band i ever managed was testament talk a little bit so you were hesitant to go into management, but did did that those anxieties manifest when you actually decided to take the leap? No, I figured this, this, you know let's, let's do this. So obviously I had to learn, you know, learn as I went. But I came with a bunch of skills that turned out are useful as you know when you're you can go into music management from all sorts of different angles. There are lawyers who do it. There are A&R people that do it. There are tour managers that do it. Um, just, you know, there, there are skills from each one of those areas that you can take with you. And we came in with a bunch of lawyer skills and had to learn the, the rest of it. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, speed metal. Uh, you're going to, I really want you to talk about this. At the time, uh, it was essentially a burgeoning new genre of music. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, Metallica had hit. Slayer was just starting to get an audience. Um, and as a matter of fact, my boss and I had negotiated their, I guess, their first major label deal. Um, Megadeth was just starting to get popular. Anthrax was just starting to get popular. Wow. But it was still, It was still a pretty new genre. We're putting this like 78 kind of range area? No, this is like 84. 84. Okay, so you graduate. Uh, so you're in that business with the with the other Jew uh, through like 80, 81. Is that right about there? No, I got, out, I got out of graduate. Let me think. I got out of law school in 81, spent two or three years as a jury consultant, 84, Worked for a year for this computer company, 85. Started to work in the music business again in 85, probably. So we're probably talking 86, 87 that this is going on. So if you can, I'm curious, because I have friends, they're not playing that style of music, but, I mean, just in general, it's just so fascinating because you go through, well, you said it before, too. I mean, uh, Sean and Oz's first three records didn't sell a lot. The, the company still, uh, you know, people didn't abandon groups that were playing original music for a long time. Uh, how did, how was it that you were able to take Cats, even though it was a pretty new genre of music? First of all, how, what or is it? What music did it come? Did it come from? Do you think? Well. You know, I think you start seeing groups like Black Sabbath hit. Like, sure. Actually, right around 1970, I think. Absolutely. The Black Sabbath album came out in 69. Yeah. So you got Ozzy 
and then you've got um, you know then you've got pretty hard British bands like Uriah Heep and Deep Purple and then you know Aerosmith starts hitting and then it just gets heavier so how this I'm just because it's not my bag I mean those cats were I mean Ozzy I know some of that stuff is just soaring though I mean it doesn't and a lot of it was melodic. I mean, was there still, like... Um, well, Metallica, I think, is the first band that that's not, you know, at the beginning, at least, is not melodic at all. Right, right. And 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 Slayer. So, you know, I'm not quite sure where it came from. But when I stepped into it, I couldn't believe that the music existed. I just, I mean, to, I mean, this is, it's, it's so, so at the time, I'm just curious because nowadays my original question was it, I mean, the amount, even locally, if we have a great new, we have a great jazz club that's been open here for a couple of years and it's, it's going to stick around called the century room and no, I mean, we're talking the top level musicians, not necessarily like chops or anything, but like guys that just have great feel. They're amazing. And every time that they get together to play, they have to say, this is a tribute to Mulgrew Miller or Keith Jarrett. It's got to be some recognizable name so that if people are willing to pay, it has to be a recognizable person. The, the idea of, of actually going and saying, wow, this is original music. Um, I'm not sure. They don't have a lot of uh, pedigree, but um, it was even in the mid-'80s, what were the biggest – what were the things that allowed you to at least even get like uh, outside of a regional touring circuit for a band that testament that was essentially completely unknown? Um, well, the, cir the circuit existed by then. I mean, I started going there. There were a couple of clubs in San Francisco and, and in the Bay Area that kind of specialized in, you know, very hard metal. What was their name? And what were the names of those clubs? Oh boy! Um, this is really important. I've never heard of this. These clubs. Oh. And I know they existed. I know they did. If it comes you know, to you later, let me know. <laughs> it, it's gonna come later. Yeah. Oh, that's, the Omni. That was there was a club called the Omni. The Omni. In uh, in Oakland. Wow. And um, boy, there was a club that was like right on Broadway, just kind of in the corner at one corner of North Beach. And damned if I can remember it, but I remember going to see Exodus. Yeah, they another they were another legal client of mine, but in sort of a similar genre. And I walked in, and the place was completely packed. Holy! And they started playing, and not only were there people diving off the stage, but there were people running across the tops of the heads of the people in the audience. Oh my God, dude! Are you in. kidding? It was like a highway. Oh my God. And it was just complete bedlam, you know. And I went, "Oh my god!" These were these were the these were the the early incarnation mosh pits, so to speak. Yeah, cats were so, running across on people's heads. Yeah. Oh my. And god. everybody was packed in tightly enough that it was like a, a highway, you know. You so, take. You know, I, yeah. I represented Testament and Exodus and violence and forbidden evil and vicious rumors. Dude, I cannot believe the thrash metal roster you had, dude. This is unbelievable. Well, everybody but Metallica, which is the one band, of course, that that really meant something in the Bay Area at the time. So, yeah, but we, we represented all of them. 
I mean, from the so okay, so regionally there were some place there were some clubs there, but then ultimately, uh, no, there was a circuit around the country and also in Europe. So. Well, of course, and you so in the country, uh, generally speaking, how many like your when you first got a hold of Testament, would you say that they went on a domestic touring circuit right away? Uh, I'm trying to remember the first time, the first show I think that I did with them, although I didn't go, was a festival in, in Holland. Wow. And, um, I remember I got a call from someone in the band saying that the, the label's representative had gotten into trouble with customs in Holland because she was wearing a T-shirt that said, speak English or die. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Um, yeah, this, this is unbelievable. So my partner was a guy named Jeff Saltzman. Right. So, um, and our yeah, con man was the name of our, our management company. <laughs> And I was, we were constantly telling them, would you please turn the volume down? I mean, I like loud music, but this is just out of control. And they had a sign in their rehearsal room that said, if it's too loud, you must be Jeff or Elliot. Oh, my dude. Yeah. See, I mean, <clears throat> part of me, like, I would not be a purist if I was making good dough, but that, that music would be hard for me to, I mean, it's like supporting You'd have to figure out a way to rationalize it and get behind it. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I never was a fan of the music. Right. Um, I appreciated it when it was done well, but it's not that I ever really liked it. I was just dedicated to their career. And my job was to help them, you know, get as far as they could go and, you know, do it with some level of integrity. But it's not like I was ever a big speed metal fan. Jeff Saltzman, my partner, I think appreciated it more than I did. Um, what was the? Um, were you able to sort of? I, I guess I'm fascinated by this because it's just right now uh, with Road Dogs that are playing original music. They, I mean, the money for the gigs. There's no money for gigs anymore, and I have a feeling that with Exodus. And the other bands you represented, the was the money was the bread pretty good for the actual gigs themselves? Because what's interesting is like the only way that cats make money today playing original music is is if is if they can actually make it to the merch table after playing a three hour exhaust, and they have to do all that themselves. Well, at the lower levels, yeah. At the upper levels, of course, there's a ton of money to be made on the road because. Ticket prices are so exorbitant now, and people are willing to pay them. Absolutely, no. no I, so back then, with those bands, how did you actually? How did those guys make? Did they make good bread? Were you able to negotiate good bread for the actual gigs themselves? No. Um, hmm. You know, it got to the well. Testament. Let's just talk about yeah. their career. So, yeah. I guess I worked on four or five albums with them. And the first one sold, I don't know, maybe sixty or seventy thousand records, and the second maybe 125 and the third, you know, maybe like 350 or so. And, you know, their career touring you know, sort of was progressing at the, the same level. So their problem was that they spent so much money on production because at the time 
if you didn't have like this gigantic stack of exactly, of homes, dude, exactly. You know, dummy ca- dummy yeah. cabinets. I know. Which I always thought was the most preposterous thing. <laughs> you know, sort of the equivalent of like you know strapping a cucumber to your you know to your thigh when you're walking around in tight pants. <laughs> <laughs> dude, it was all about show. Size matters, you know. Exactly. Yeah, so, I so, did. Like, you got to convince people that I guess most people in the audience didn't realize that ninety percent of these Marshall cabinets on stage had nothing in them. Oh you know, my god, that's totally insane! Oh my god, that's insane, dude. This is not. I mean, so it was becoming. It was becoming more about a, a show and much less about music. Um. Yeah, although they were they were into their music. That's for sure. Absolutely. So they really believed in it. It was not like Warren or, you know, some of these hair bands where it really was all about show. Right, 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 right. Yeah, these guys were totally into it. So You're know, going back to the Winterland Productions, I mean, there was nobody, I mean, Bill Graham, uh, as you know, uh, would, uh, you know, he, he, he would put the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Malo, and the Sons of Champlin all in the same, all in the same bill, and he'd be like, you know, these hippies or whatever. They they may not know who these cats are, but I wa- they need to dig this music. I mean, but with that speed metal, uh, especially in the mid '80s when everything was conforming and becoming streamlined, you didn't have. Were they on bills or were they on tour? Like especially in the fledgling years when they were only selling sixty to seventy thousand copies of the records, were they winding up on bills with? Other genres of music, or was it all speed metal? No, no, it was pretty much all speed metal. Oh, man. So, I remember they did one tour with, let me see if I can remember, it was Slayer. Oh, yeah. And Megadeth, and Testament, and Suicidal Tendencies. This is unreal. That is so much of the same thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. And I remember, like, the doors would open, and I... Some of the shows, I would see kids literally run into the room and start smashing their fists into the walls until their fist went, just to get into the spirit of oh it. Oh my, dude, this was like the most primal, this is what I, this is so fascinating because it's so, well, I guess it, is that kind of like, I mean, because I, I, it's so out of my bag, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but, you know, I don't know if you... That that second Woodstock in the late '90s, where it was chaos, you know, just there was just pandemonium, and a lot of that was metal. Right, it was heavy metal. Although I was there as Green Day's manager. Well, we're not we're gonna have to do set three because I don't even want to jump into that yet. I, okay. I. But no, but you just mentioned Woodstock yeah. too, so I was on stage. Oh my God, you were there! You were freaking. Okay, so I, let's just say I want to go ahead. Fight, yeah. You know. I mean. So anyway, back to testing. Yeah. So. There's, a, there's kind of an interesting story about them because their career was progressing really well. Um, in terms of touring, they the only way they could tour at the beginning was getting tour support from the record label, who would essentially you know give them the money so they could at least break even and then recoup it from their record sales. Right. Um, but what happened? You know, just around the time their fourth album came out, was Kurt Cobain happened. Whoa. Nirvana happened, sure. and overnight, like boom, the blink of an eye, the musical taste of a whole generation of kids who liked hard music just changed. Boom, and it was, you know, 
as somebody who felt responsible for the careers and the well-being of all of these heavy metal musicians, it was tragic. Let me stop you right That's a fascinating point. You're telling me on a dime, because, I mean, I'm thinking Cobain was, it was more that term grunge music. Yeah. But what was that? So what was the, like, in the, as a musician, what were the, uh, I mean, I grew up on Cobain. That was, I was in the early 90s. I was in junior high, high school. I was, that stuff was, but uh, what made, was it more musical? Why did it change like that? Or just because of the, uh, you know, Cobain was like a Jim Morrison kind of figure. Yeah, it was just, you know. Okay, so <laughs> let me just tell Break you it down. a funny kind of story. Yeah. So I got a call one day from the outside attorney for Nirvana's record label. And she said, Elliot, you know, we got a bunch of bands and... Um, there's sub-pop records, and they've never signed a record. None of them has ever signed a record. So I know that you represent a lot of independent bands. Would you rep- be interested in representing some of them? Wow. And I said, sure, who are they? And she said, well, there's Mudhoney. And I had heard of Mudhoney. I'm not sure if I'd ever heard a note of this, but I certainly knew who they existed. Right. They existed. And then she said, then this is a band called Nirvana, whom I had never heard of. <laughs> and then she said, this is great. Then she said, but the one that we're all convinced is going to be V1 is Tad. No way. Yeah. And Tad was fronted by a 300-pound butcher named Thomas A. Doyle, hence it, Tad. Tad. So she called me up a couple of days later and said, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, Nirvana just signed with another lawyer two days ago, but, but I'm sure I can get you Mud Honey and Tad. So I ended up with Mud Honey and Tad and got record deals, you know, with major labels for both of them. Um, Tad really never did anything, and Mud Honey did a little bit, and Nirvana, as you all know. So um, wow. Smells Like Teen Spirit started getting played on the radio and the way you hear it from the label, I mean, from the record stations, radio stations, is their phones just, you know, lit up immediately. And it just caught, you know, it just caught everybody. Everybody. Dude, I, it, every, I mean, that stuff was on repeat every day. I yeah. mean, it was in that, and we're <clears throat> everywhere. I mean, I guess it was worldwide pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Holy cow. Nobody expected it. And it just it just grabbed everybody. So everybody, you know, 90% of the kids who were into speed metal suddenly were grunge fans. <laughs> and they didn't, you know, they still wanted to see Metallica, but they really didn't want to see Anthrax or Metallica or Slayer or Testament or Exodus anymore. Um, they didn't want to buy their records. So, like, you know, everybody's career just hit a wall. Boom. And it was kind of tragic. How did you how did you deal with that? I mean, those cats. Uh, I, I'm sure they were taking out their regret, their frustration on somebody. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I like how 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 as a as a, as a litigator, but also, I mean, you have many wear many different hats. It's like uh, I was never a litigator, but I was a lawyer. A lawyer, a yeah, okay, yeah. And I cared about their careers, and I just said, guys, this wave is coming, huh. and. It's going to bury you if you don't really be careful and tighten your belts. And, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't have 17 
dummy cabinets on stage anymore because you can't get the, you know. You just don't have that kind of, oh, yeah. get the merchandising right. advances to keep you afloat, to keep you going. So it was, it was tough. Just going back for a second, though, you're telling, I mean, I know that, <clears throat> I mean, we're talking, I don't know if you ever knew guys like Jerry Pompili, Bill Graham, sure. okay, like sure, I know, I know Jerry well. So, I mean, love the cat. So, I did a couple of interviews with him, and he was talking about like Bruce Springsteen, like you know, early seventies had not had a radio hit yet, um, and he had made uh, I guess Wild Innocent East Street Shuffle, and he was, I mean, he was Bill had given him these records to listen to to figure out who the hot band was. And, you know, he listened to this record. He goes, I think this, these guys are going to be fucking amazing. And it, sure enough, he came to, to Winterland, and, it, it, you know, it, it was it it absolutely manifested that way. But, you know, we're talking Bruce, Joni Mitchell, I'm, I know that, you know, James yeah. Taylor, those cats could go out. And because they were on major record labels, like you said, even if the tours lost money, it could still be written off because based on the, on the amount of records they were selling. Yeah. And let me... Let me tell you a story, by the way. Please, so, yeah. Um, I was sitting in a dressing room at a college gig somewhere in the Midwest, and our drummer came into the dressing room and said, Gino, as was my name at the time, you got to see this guy who's opening for us. And I said, you know, who is it? He said, his name is Bruce Springsteen. Never heard of him. I said, what does he sound like? Because Jocko saying, you got to come upstairs and listen to the rest of his set. And um, when you frequently, when you talk about somebody that no one has heard of before, you sort of look for points of comparison. Sure. So, so he said he sort of sounds like a cross between Dylan and Van Mars. Oh my, that's classic. Both of them, both of them I love, and of course, you know, for the past forty years, fifty years, he sounds like Bruce Springsteen. Doesn't sound like anybody. Sure. But okay, I'll go up. <laughs> so I went upstairs, and he was right at the end of his set and I think he was playing Rosalita for the first or second time. Oh my god. And I just went, wow, this is this guy is a this band, this guy is amazing. That band so, was hot too. Yeah. So he was trying to break into the college market because at the time it may still be the case, you could get you know, sort of in early stages of your career, you could get paid a lot more money playing in colleges than you could playing clubs. At, uh, uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra did that. I mean, Billy Cobham had, had T-shirts from West Virginia University. Everybody was wearing, everybody was doing that college circuit. Yeah, so Bruce was trying to break into the college market, so he ended up opening, I don't know, half a dozen shows for us. And once again, it's not like we're ever the best buddies, but yeah, we, we hung out together. That's, and, uh, that is so, wait, was, was it probably like 70, roughly? This is probably 73, early 70. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. Like but, but I mean. So his, his first <laughs> album had come out and not done very well. And they hadn't recorded The Wildly Innocent yet. Um, but the songs they were starting to play, you know, Rosalita ended up being the, you know, the big song on that album. That's, that's exactly, yeah, I'll send you that Pompili interview because it's a great story about him throwing on this record and being like, wow. I don't, he got a bunch of them, Elton John, and the, the one that stood out to him was Bruce Springsteen, who was still relatively unknown. Um, you're telling me that even at the, so, you, you know, Joni Mitchell can go out, lose money, but still make, sell hundreds of thousands of records. With Testament, they still, 
with even w- with the record company, the record company was still willing to float them uh, on tour. Yeah, because at the time people sold records. That was the medium, yeah. Right. Yeah, people don't sell records anymore. So you went out on the road to promote your records. And selling records was could be very lucrative for record companies. Not so lucrative for the recording artists because of the way the contracts were structured, but very lucrative for the the record labels if you know, if a record was successful. So That's a that's a good point. And you're also talking about mid to late eighties when CDs had not fully taken over the market either. You it was really right. a record based still a record based industry. Yep. Um that's right. so um can we just put a button in this now and then let this breathe for a minute and then do a set three? Sure. I think we, Absolutely. and let's, uh, we'll, we'll put a button in Kurt Cobain, what is that, 91, 90? I don't even know when that happened. Probably Nirvana hits maybe 92, Yeah, that's it. Like I was in eighth, ninth, I remember, dude, I just, by the time I was in high school, which was 94, it was everywhere. I mean, it just, yeah. it was nuts. I, it's a fact so that's really, you know, ultimately we have the whole other part of your career to still take care of. So yeah. let's uh, 